Years after serving as vice president of the United States, Dick Cheney announced that he had had multiple heart attacks prior to assuming office. Additionally, Cheney had had an implanted medical device, one that kept him alive, but also one that could have made him vulnerable to a terrorist attack. Here's CBS Evening News. In 2007, when Cheney needed his implanted defibrillator replaced, Dr. Reiner ordered the manufacturer to disable the wireless feature, fearing a terrorist could assassinate the vice president by sending a signal to the device telling it to shock his heart into cardiac arrest. And it seemed to me to be a bad idea for the vice president of the United States to have a device that maybe somebody on a rope line or someone in the next hotel room or downstairs might be able to get into, hack into, and I worried that someone could kill you. Years later, this scene from the Showtime drama Homeland showed just how it could be done to the fictional vice president. I'm killing you. What did you think when you watched that? Well, um, I was aware of the, the, the danger, if you will, that existed. Um, but I found it credible because I, I knew from the experience we'd had and the necessity for adjusting my own device that uh, it was a, an accurate portrayal of what was possible. This is a story of how personal medical devices implanted in the body can be vulnerable to remote attacks and how some in the security world are working to prevent that from happening. I'm Robert Famosi. This is Error Code. I'm Todd Brazel, and I'm a healthcare IT security consultant. I have about 20 years of experience in, in different aspects of security and software development. Todd wrote a book, Security Issues of Personal Medical Devices, Characteristics, Concerns, and Controls. And after reading it, it occurred to me that we talk a lot about the larger healthcare issues, such as in the previous episode, episode 16, where I talked with Josh Corman about the recently passed Patch Act. But we often ignore the personal implanted devices. In this episode, we're going to focus on the medical devices that are sometimes in the body. Yeah, largely. Yeah, they. Uh, although in the past five years, there's been a, a, a bigger growth of devices that are wearable and that also serve uh, a similar kind of function. Okay, we're talking about insulin pumps, glucose meters, pumps, neurotransmitters. These devices are outside the body. So a friend of mine has one of these because her daughter has uh, a seizure disorder. So there's a monitoring device, and there's a particular name for it. There's a, tra- uh, a manufactured name that's trademarked, and I can't think of it off the top of my head. Uh, it's, it's a medical device. She needs to wear it, but it's not something that's implanted in her body. What about something like a cochlear implant for hearing, which is both inside and outside the body? Yeah, that's very similar. So some of those actually involve, um, they're a little more invasive. So they could be you know, something that is actually implanted in the, in the skin or something like that. So yeah, that would be part of it too. Um, also, um, for uh, there's another device for uh, seizure disorders, which is a uh, uh, a stimulator for the, uh, there's a nerve that runs here. Um, and that's also sometimes used for the, in the treatment of depression as well. 
So I wondered how Todd got into this research. Was it something he was doing for his job, or was this something that he personally took on? Um, yeah, no, this wasn't to do with my job. I mean, yes, I am a security consultant. Um, and at the time, I was going for my master's degree. And um, it was a master's of business administration. And um, I got about three years into the program, and I realized that I, I kind of made a mistake. And what I should have done was get a master's degree in, in IT or something more technical. Um, although the MBA is great. Yeah. It was a good program. So they, uh, the folks, at, it was at the University of Albany. So the folks at the University of Albany and my thesis advisor, Dr. Goal, uh, allowed me to have a very technical kind of thesis. And so I, I took some more technical classes. Um, and then I just was looking for a subject and I, I do a lot of martial arts and, um, one of my sparring partners had a heart attack and he came back, which we didn't expect. And he came back to actually practice. So, and there were rules that we had to follow. We couldn't like really do anything around it, whereas devices implanted. And he also owned a business. So I, I said, it's like, so are you going to like retire now? You're going to quit. And he said, no, no, I'm going to keep working and run the business. And I said, oh, okay. Um, so it brought to my awareness that there are all these devices on the market that allow people who are younger to be able to have a, a fulfilling life and to contribute to society, to society and keep working. And, um, and then the cybersecurity brain kicked in and I thought, well, wait a second, <laughs> what does this mean? What data is it, is it collecting and how does it, how does it interface? And, um, how can we hack into it? Because part of my job is being a penetration tester. So, um, and that's how it led to this. And um, it was, and then I noticed that there, there wasn't really a lot of research done into it. So in the past, at least with those devices that were implanted in the body, you would have to go in and have somebody be in close physical proximity to calibrate, upgrade, and let alone get the data. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Yeah. They, um, uh, for like a pace, uh, an ICD pacemaker kind of thing, um, for uh, neuro neurostimulators, those kinds of things, those those are generally implanted. Yeah, so you have to go in and have an operation done. Uh, for the ICD pacemaker, you're actually under uh, general anesthetic. Now there are wireless protocols that allow for remote sensing. Currently, there's um, a a home device that um, the, 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 so when you go home and usually it happens at night, it'll connect while you're sleeping and it'll um, upload information to that device and then that device sends it off to um, the cloud essentially. So where that's consumed by um, insurance companies, your healthcare provider, that stuff, yeah. So what is the connecting technology? Um, well, it kind of depends. So the most current devices um, use Bluetooth um, older devices use, uh, there's four different frequencies that they communicate on and they have different communication protocols. So it, it depends on the age of the device. Um, and there's also a fallbacks as well. So if something isn't communicating via Bluetooth, then a medical professional can fall back to a different kind of technology. There's even a, um, a very, very short range, uh, communication technology that like for an ICD, there's a wand and you, you place the, the wand over the ICD where it's implanted. There's a magnet that triggers uh, communication 
between the device and the wand. You can establish communication that way. So I'm thinking of personal medical devices in terms of, say, IoT. It sounds a lot like durable goods that go out into the field for like, you know, 20 years or more with minimal upgrades. Is that a fair assessment of some of these medical devices? Um, not for 20 years. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> they usually have, uh, they all have batteries and the batteries have to be replaced around every five years, like three to six years. And so if it's an implanted device, then that requires um, additional surgery and they have to go in and, and remove the device and they'll replace the batteries. Or um, if the device is no longer supported or if it needs to be upgraded to different hardware, then they'll just implant another device in there. Um, and that holds true for the neurostimulators and for the ICDs. So an ICD could be like a pacemaker, uh, an implantable cardioverter defibrillator, which is um, a defibrillation device. Uh, and then there's a, there's a left ventricle assist device. And there's another device that, that I can't remember off the top of my head. So, and they follow the same pattern, which is, I talked about that in the book, which is they have um, a unit that um, administer, that monitors the patient internally and administers the uh, the treatment through the through electrodes, and sometimes those electrodes need to be replaced too. That's kind of why I went around the horn on that story. So, Todd mentions in his book some of the research that is done in the past, such as with Barnaby Jack, who died in 2017. Barnaby is perhaps best known for dragging a casino slot machine on stage at the Rio Hotel for DEFCON and having it spit out paper money into the audience. Shortly before his death, Barnaby had announced that he was going to be able to mess with somebody's insulin pump from across the room. Here's Barnaby on Bloomberg TV. I picked insulin pumps uh, mostly just because of uh, the ease of actually acquiring them. Um, we're planning on looking at pacemakers and various other implantable devices, but unfortunately it's, uh, it's, it's a little tough to just be able to pick up a pacemaker on the street. So. Barnaby, take me through how this all works. Okay, so there's actually a vulnerability in these devices. Uh, typically, to be able to communicate with them, you'd know, need to know the serial number. I have a vulnerability which will let me acquire the serial number from any of these insulin pumps within a 100-meter range. And that's this, this thing right here? Yeah, so this is my software which exploits that vulnerability to actually return the IDs of any insulin pumps in that range. From 100 meters away, I can scan for any insulin pumps in the vicinity. Um, it will return those insulin pump IDs, and then I can have them dispense their entire 300 units of insulin, which... Uh, for a type 1 diabetic will easily prove fatal um, unless you seek immediate medical attention. Most patients think they can turn off wireless capability or that safety mechanisms will warn them of an attack. Uh, what they don't realize is that I actually disable all of these warnings and that the RF functionality cannot be turned off. It's always listening. Even if you turn off the remote option on the pump, it was, this attack will still work because the RF transmitter is always listening. I wondered if research like this and the work that Jay Radcliffe and others have done on insulin pumps has finally been recognized in serious legislation such as the Patch Act. Yeah, I think so. I think there's just a, a growing awareness of these issues with these medical devices as, as people like Barnaby Jack and other researchers really um, bring uh, their 
research to these conferences and that gets coverage. And we also see on the on the opposite side, we see more and more attacks against hospitals and healthcare organizations. So thankfully we haven't seen any any personal attacks against med- these types of medical devices, but it's something that I think more and more people are becoming becoming aware of, and that's a good thing. I remember when Barnaby announced this attack, and it just amazed me at the time that something like that could even clear FDA approval. Yeah, I, I remember reading about that and having the same reaction. Um, and the further that I dug into it, the more that I saw that um, the devices the devices are mainly protected through uh, obscurity. So it just they're difficult to hack into. Um, and the uh, there was uh, I think it was Greenspan's research where they um, hacked into a uh, a pacemaker. And to do that, they needed a team of engineers, uh, including uh, someone who uh, specialized in radio frequency analysis. And they had to actually reverse engineer the way that the that the devices that it connected to its home base. So it took a long time. Um, but now things are actually kind of easier because they're using things like a Bluetooth stack. And that's something that's um, more familiar for people to, to get in to get into get information about. I once worked with Jay Radcliffe at Makana, and he gave a talk at Black Hat on hacking his insulin pump. And I remember him in the press room masking the name of the device because he didn't want the manufacturer, well, to get mad at him. As a patient, he needed the device. As a security researcher, he needed to spread the word that these devices in general were not that secure. I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, when I was when I was actively researching this, and um, you know, I have to I have to admit it's not something I've looked at in the past couple of years, just because you know we've moved on. Um, we're actually getting more into AI, believe it or not. <laughs> so, but um, yeah, there was a lot of resistance, um, and I think the one of the good things that came out of it was um, the FTC's ruling uh, that allows people to uh, perform good faith investigation and research into devices so and not just mobile devices but things like cars and uh, those types of things uh, to examine them for cybersecurity issues so that helped a lot in the setup for this piece we talked a little bit about how organizations can be under threat from this i'm curious how does this relate to what we're talking about things implanted in the body to an organization um yeah there are uh, different vectors. So if you look at the individual, there are, you know, there's threats against an individual. So um, someone could use um, either an attack or the threat of an attack against an individual. Um, usually people, usually people don't want to kill other people. <laughs> they want to extort them for some reason. So uh, they could use the threat of, of either uh, taking action against their device uh, as a way of of coercing them into either maybe uh, some some type of criminal action, some type of criminal activity. Um, there are also other ways of looking at it. So you can look at it from an organizational perspective. Um, if the person is a key member of the organization, I mean, I think one of the uh, 
the canonical examples of this is Dick Cheney's uh, pacemaker and how you know, all the safeguards they took around that. But if you're the CEO of an organization or if you're the, the chief architect of a, of a technology uh, and you have a device like this, um, that rep represents a vulnerability that needs to be addressed in some way. Um, and then there are other types of things that organizations might want to be concerned about. Um, the, uh, the ability of of some of these older devices, the ability of them to be tracked in different ways. So you can track a person's movements, uh, you can fingerprint who they are, so you know that this person is in this location at this time. Um, so it allows an attacker under the right conditions to uh, use it as an information gathering device. So it could be one part of a larger effort against an organization. If you're talking about a nation state actor, then they would have the resources and the time to really track all of these types of different vulnerabilities and bring them together into some type of um, programmatic attack against an organization. So it's a possibility. I think it's worth looking at. For an organization then, are there recommended mitigations or best practices for the IT department to observe? Um, yes. So that Again, it goes back to looking at the uh, what you're trying to protect and what exposure there is in, in this case. So um, a lot of it boils down to um, making sure that, well, first of all, you have to make sure that the person who has that device is safe. So you want to make sure that when they are going about their work, that they're not under a direct threat because first and foremost in any security situations is the safety of human life. So you want to make sure that just make sure that they're not exposed to magnetic fields or to strong EMF fields. Um, there was a case where a woman had a, a neuro neurotransplant uh, for her, her uh, seizure disorder. And um, she had no physical connection to the home base, but during a thunderstorm, there was a strong lightning strike nearby, so that caused an, an EMP, electromagnetic pulse, and that actually reset her device. Uh, so she it took her a couple hours, but it was able to restart, and it got her seizures back under control. So I think that's uh, that's something to be aware of, um, especially in IT, to to make sure that that person is safe and that they don't they're not exposed to any kind of health hazards. Uh, and then from there, kind of working outwards. So um, taking uh, steps to, uh, you know, taking steps and putting in, putting in place security controls to, to mitigate risk from, you know, tracking a device um, or uh, making sure that um, there are other safeguards in place. So it's like, you know, the, um, you have to look at the overall risk though. You know, you think about a hospital. So right. someone someone in a hospital who might be a chief administrator who has uh, maybe an insulin pump. Um, and the, the larger threat, the more likely threat is going to be a ransomware attack against the hospital's uh, records itself and not necessarily against that hospital administrator. So you, you have to look at the overall picture of the organization, but it's kind of like, it's a very, very similar to protecting against um, any type of, of, of attack against a mobile device. I think it's just it's just having awareness of, of that. So, Todd mentioned that oftentimes the goal is not to kill somebody, but to mess with them. 
So with an insulin pump or a glucose meter, you can mess with the settings and somebody will be off, so to speak. Yeah, you can do a lot. Um, I think uh, you probably got this from some of your research, but you know, the the obvious thing is you know messing with the settings so that it either withholds treatment or it over 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 treats. Um, sometimes those functions are more protected. So there are other things you can do, like you can um, cause it to go into a cause the device to go into a um, like a, a, a particular type of communication mode where it's always reaching trying to reach the home base, uh, which wears down the battery. Um, if it's an implanted device, wearing the battery down means that that person has to go in for surgery. Uh, with an insulin pump, that just means that they need to replace the battery in their insulin pump. So that's usually an over-the-counter fix. Um, so, yeah, so there's something like that where you can perform some type of other attack that just um, impedes the function of the device, causes it to stop working, go into uh, like a debugging a debugging mode or something like that. Um, another, uh, attack might be just the, um, existence of the device itself. So some people for various reasons, they want to, they don't want to disclose that they have a device. Maybe it's a neurostimulator for a treatment of depression. Um, so that could be something that's used against them. I'm curious, how might an adversary actually track somebody with a medical device? That's there's a there's some different ways of doing it. So one of the ways that I'm aware of is this um, just through Bluetooth itself, and uh, so the devices any Bluetooth device can uh, give off information about itself, um, just as it's trying to find another find the other Bluetooth devices around it, um, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before about the, the regulations around medical devices and communication, um, the way that the devices are set up and how they communicate is not something that's readily available. And so often it's, um, it's hard to tell what it's doing and how it's communicating. And like I said, there are fall fallback uh, modes of communication. So, um, which sounds like a bad thing, but then again, these devices are designed to uh, preserve health and they're not necessarily designed to be secure. You always have that situation where um, health and safety is going to trump security. So if someone needs emergency treatment and um, they, the EMT or whoever has to know what this device is and how it functions, then they have ways of accessing information on the device. So, um, And the device itself is going to carry information about the patient so it's going to have things like the patient's name um the prescriber what type of device it is what its capabilities are so that information is probably going to be readily available without a lot of protection behind it because in, a, in an emergency situation the people at the hospital or the who are trying to do some kind of emergency intervention they're they they don't have time to really deal with encryption uh, and there's not really a way to kind of safely encrypt the information on the device um, that needs to be accessed. So in a lot of situations involving emergency information, and I work with uh, emergency service providers as part of my job, they tend to not want things to be password protected. So they don't want encryption. They don't want a password protected. Um, because it, they need to access the information right now and human life is at stake. So that trumps security. 
Um, so this, so yeah, you can do things like you can use a scanner. Um, it may be, so it may be trying to connect through Bluetooth. It may be trying to, it may be able to respond to an interrogation, um, through a transmitter, through another, uh, another type of communication protocol. There's, um, I don't know if it was Barnaby Jack, but there's another, uh, researcher who, who did that. He was able to, uh, interrogate and introspect, uh, an insulin pump by, um, pinging it on a, on a particular frequency and it responded to that. So there's different ways of, of getting, getting at the information. And this is because Bluetooth is always on. You can get their device ID and then try to pair with them. Well, that's a good question because I don't know. And, um, at the time I was, I was looking into this, it was really hard to tell. And I didn't have access to a medical device. Uh, one of the things, one of the things I was trying to do, why, why I did this to begin with was there's a community of hackers where I live and I was trying to get interest in, in looking into this further. Um, but we, we just couldn't get a grant. And, um, there were people who were interested in, you know, if you don't have any money, then no, no one's really going to look into it. So getting the device and setting it up and going through the, the process of doing that, uh, it's fairly time intensive and we just couldn't do it. So, um, but I, in the absence of, of that, I had to assume that there's the potential that it's going to broadcast information. So generally the medical devices are set up so that they're, they're open, um, and not, not closed. So I think even if they're communicating in an over an encrypted communication channel, there's still going to be some information that's, that's available. I remember talking with Howard Schmidt, the former cyber czar under Obama for my first book. He told me that if he had a medical event while he was flying somewhere, that he would want a random doctor on the plane to be able to take their mobile device, run it over his chest, and read the information in order to, you know, help him in that situation. This was back in 2010 that I talked to him. Even today, that scenario would make sense were it to provide some sort of personal privacy. I'm thinking, though, of other scenarios, you know, where I'm the bad guy. And in a meeting with Howard Schmidt, for example, I would turn on my mobile, search for any Bluetooth devices in the area. Then I would see the device pop up and then I could target that. Yeah, it's uh, kind of scary to think that. And that's, as a security professional, I did not do that. So I had the opportunity to do that um, with a friend who was cooperative, um, but I didn't want to risk uh, putting his health at stake. And I thought it was just, yeah, I think I thought there was enough research already being done. <laughs> so, and that's why like, in the book, I just use a generic device, which had been, um, you know, set to a, a, a like a, um, a low communication mode, you know, it was a speaker, a Bluetooth speaker. Hmm. And, uh, but even so it was, it was able to, I was able to inspect it with uh, my phone. I had an, I loaded an app on my phone. And I was able to, to scan the devices around me and, and it popped up. So um, the problem with like doing this with the medical devices, you could inadvertently trigger uh, some type of, of mode on the device where it um, you know goes into uh, a different type of treatment mode. And I really didn't want to do that. So uh, it was just too great a risk involved. As I mentioned earlier, Todd is the author of Security Issues of Personal Medical Devices, Characteristics, Concerns, and Controls. So... Why did he write the book? I wrote the book for a couple of reasons. I, the, the main reason was I saw a need to bring this information to a greater awareness. 
because I had several people in my life and still do several people in my life who have different types of devices and they really had never thought about the security implications of those devices. And as a patient, they were never told about the security implications of the devices and they never had a conversation about it. And, um, and that as a security person, that kind of bothered me a little bit. And I know that as a patient, you don't really have a choice. So when you're having a cardiac event, you have to be treated right away. And usually within a few days, they wind up implanting the, the, uh, the cardiac device. Um, but yeah, that was, the, uh, that was the main reason it was just, just to raise awareness of the security issues. I wanted to actually bring it to, um, physicians, cardiologists, and, and neurologists, because I don't think that they're really thinking about it either. And maybe they could talk to their patients about it and just give them uh, a, a, just a picture of what, what other things are involved, um, what they have to be aware of, especially today. And then you get into things like privacy and data privacy. And there's a, um, a colleague of mine who's an attorney and she specializes in privacy and uh, we've collaborated on, on several things. So there's that aspect of all this data is being collected about you, what's happening to it. And in some cases it's being used, be packaged up and, and resold for different purposes. Most of the time, it's, of course, it's just uh, their medical records, but um, it is data about you and it's, and it's stored somewhere. And you need to be aware of that. So, and the folks that I talked to who had these devices weren't aware. They never thought about it. They just know that it connects to this home device and that's it. So they didn't really, they didn't really, think about it. so that was the main reason just to raise awareness of it. So it was a delicate balance when raising awareness. As a patient, when you receive this, you really don't have a choice. It's not like you can shop around and find the most secure device out there. So somebody with a device like this, should they be actively concerned? You know, we talked about some risks. Are those risks probably low at the moment? Yes, the risks are low. So as a as a patient, I would not have any any real concern about my device being hacked in any way for for a number of reasons. So uh, some of the some of the reasons are simply because of the difficulty involved. And there's, from an attacker perspective, there's a, a risk reward calculation. So if you're a small business owner, someone's probably not going to hack your medical device when there are so many other ways that they can steal information about you. So they can use you know, a phishing attack or something like that. So um, I think the, the thing to be really aware of is uh, where your data is going and how it's being used and how it's being protected. I think that that's something that a patient should really be aware of. Even then, I've written about privacy, and there's very little that a patient can do because more or less the EULA says that you have to agree to it. That's it. Yeah. Um, in in Europe, it's a different story, but here in the U.S., uh, that's pretty much, you, know, you just sort of have to, to, to deal with it, to eat it. Unfortunately, I can't really talk about GDPR because it's not my area of expertise. Uh, my colleague was here. She would jump on and probably lecture you for three hours on GDPR. But um, I think another thing that people, you know, what patients can do is um, there are, you know, you can always support. There's legislation that you can support. I think, um, you know, like the things like the Patch Act, ordering things like expansion of, of data protections. Um, that's why, I mean, this is one of the reasons why if I'm really in favor of a federal 
uh, federal laws on data protection like they have in, in, in Europe with GDPR. People get confused. I know I get confused, and I really shouldn't, but HIPAA was designed to allow you to move your medical information from one doctor to another. It is the Healthcare Portability Act, after all. But they didn't specify how to do that securely, and that's why Congress passed the Tech Act, which talks about the details of providing those medical records. So there's, there's HIPAA, which covers uh, covered entities, and so like hospitals. Um, but the medical device manufacturers aren't covered by HIPAA. So if there's a breach that occurs that is not under a covered entity like a hospital, then the FTC ruling kicks in. And that really just involves notifying patients that there's been a some type of breach of their information. So it's not a really strong rule. And then you have this hodgepodge of state rules um, around that. So there's a lot of, of holes in the, in the security net here regarding people's personal data. So that you have to be aware of, and it's, it's difficult. So there, there are just so many holes in the security net and it's very difficult for um, someone who's the average citizen to really become educated about how their data is being protected. And then there are a lot of non-security related things to consider with implants. Oh, uh, I was thinking about this this morning is that, because of the way things work in the US, the capabilities of the device really depend on how much your insurance is gonna cover. So some devices are able to be upgraded and some aren't upgraded. And some devices are able to be upgraded through like a firmware update and some aren't, they have to be actually replaced. Um, So I think that's something to be aware of too is as you're as a patient, if you have the choice, you have to educate yourself about what type of device is being implanted and what its capabilities are and what that's going to mean in the long term for your health and also for your safety and the safety of your data. So I'm thinking of like uh, there's a, you know different levels of insulin pumps. You know, there's the the basic and the, the high the, the Cadillac model, and, and they'll have different capabilities in terms of what they can do for you, but also how they can be maintained. On the morning of the interview with Todd, there was this article about cochlear implants in India. Children had been given free units and had gotten used to their hearing. And then the parents received a note from the manufacturer saying that it was the basic unit that they had received and that that unit was being discontinued. The parents would now have to foot the bill for a more expensive implant or deny their children the ability to hear. Yeah, I think. we have a we have a slightly different model than the U.S. I did see that story this morning, and that's what made me think about it. But yeah, that is something to to consider. I mean, there's there's different features, you know, different nice to haves. But I think people don't really think about the the up, upgrades and how they're going to be maintained because the security updates are coming in the upgrades. So especially now, you know, if there's a Oh, what was the one I saw? There's a CVE out for a, a device. I won't mention the manufacturer, but there's a CVE out. Um, on their communication stack, it can be broken into, and that's something that could be fixed in a firmware update if your device is, is upgradable. So, in designing these devices, who has authority over the safety of this? Is this an FDA thing? Yes, exactly. It's an FDA thing. So, all the devi- all medical devices in the U.S. have to be submitted um, for approval by the FDA. So, and there's a very very long process that they have to go through. 
The FDA is focused on safety and reliability, but does it check for cyber? Um, in the beginning, it was focused more on safety and reliability, and it's only recently, so from like 2015 on, that uh, the the FDA and the FTC have started to pay more attention to cybersecurity concerns, leading up to the um, the Patch Act, and then that being wrapped into legislation, which you, you talked about in another podcast. So now the the interesting thing about the Patch Act is that only applies to devices that are going to be proposed to be developed going forward. So it doesn't necessarily apply to devices that are already uh, implanted. So they're all grandparented in. So there's the FDA, which approves the device. And then Todd just mentioned the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, which allows testing in good faith on those devices. Is it a clear distinction between them? Don't they cross over? The FTC is deals with the communication aspect of it. And the FDA deals with the you know, the medical and treatment treatment aspects of it. But I mean, they do, they do work together to a, certain, to a certain extent. All this leads me to wonder if there are any ISOs or any standards that are governing personal medical devices in particular. Yes, there are. But I never really looked at them closely. I was concerned more about being aware of them in your organization and how to account for them in, a, in an overall security plan. So... Um, trying to figure out if if it represents some type of, of risk to data or security. So regulations that would apply would have to do more with HIPAA and um, FTC rulings and that kind of, uh, those types of regulations. If I'm understanding this right, with the Patch Act going forward, manufacturers will be responsible for upgrades throughout the lifetime of their device. Yeah, that's my understanding too. We're probably not going to see that really take effect because for for a number of years because that's only applies to my understanding is the patch act only applies to devices that are going to be proposed and go into uh, an evaluation period so it's going to be several years before we'll see those devices really um, that are covered by the patch act really hit the market because it just takes a while for those devices to be tested and and approved in the previous episode of error code josh corman said that Once a design is accepted by the FDA, manufacturers will iterate within that design rather than putting a new device through certification. On the one hand, it takes less time to get that new model out to market. On the other, a bad design continues. There's a whole like engineering design of medical devices that um, I never, it was just too deep of a dive to get into. So, but there's a reason why medical devices all tend to follow the same pattern. And that's because um, under FDA regulations, it's very, very difficult to get a new design approved. So if you can build a product on an old design, an existing approved design, it's faster to get to market. So that's why ICDs and pacemakers all look the same and have the same paradigm and neurostimulators follow the same paradigm. So and, and, and actually kind of look like similar devices and they're implanted in the same place as well. All of that has to be approved. Um, the fact that a lot of these devices are, they may have encryption, but the encryption may only be protected by a simple pin. Uh, and that pin is actually, sh- could be shared among devices, um, just things like that. So, um, and I think if, if more patients are aware of this, then they can um, give feedback to the device manufacturers and, and, 
And hopefully the device manufacturers will respond to that and say like, oh, look, there's patients that really are, are becoming more aware and more educated about our devices. So we need to uh, take time and build better features into them as well. Because if nobody knows about it, if nobody's talking about it, then they're not, they don't really have an incentive to try to, to fix things. I'd like to thank Todd for talking about personal medical devices. He's the author of Security Issues of Personal Medical Devices, Characteristics and Concerns and Controls, which is available on Amazon. Hey, if you're enjoying Error Code, tell a friend. I'm sure there are other people out there who like narrative information security podcasts. And I'd really like to hear from you. DM me at robertvomosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon and tell me what you like and even what you don't. I have new shows coming up, including one that will take you behind the scenes on the Hackasat 4 mission and the upcoming game at DEFCON 31, where they'll be hacking a real satellite in orbit. Subscribe today. I don't want you to miss out. <laughs>